Okay. Um, we've been teaching, I've been teaching through the book of Genesis. We are up to chapter 8, so if you want to get your Bibles out, that is where we'll start today. If I had to title this message, I'd probably just say it's Hope Floats. <laughs> it's, still, it's, a, it's a movie message, I guess. Um, and here's why. We are to the part where we are in the ark, right? In, in chapter 7, um, God shut the ark. And uh, we saw the, the rains for 40 days and 40 nights, right? And the great fountains of the deep broke forth, and the water's coming. So let's read through this, let's start, uh, starting at chapter 8. I'm going to read through, and then I'm going to come back through, and we're going to uh, kind of point out some points of exegesis that need to be brought out of the text. So before we get started, let's pray real quick. Father God, I thank you for your word. I ask you would uh, let me be faithful in expositing your word, Lord, giving the sense to the, to the people, to your people, your bride. Let your word change us, Lord. Lord, change us that we might uh, be willing to stand on your word, defend your word rather than compromise your word. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, this is... Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. You may not realize it, but there is a big point of exegesis right there that seems like superfluous information like why do we need to know that who cares what day and what month the ark came to rest well there's a really good reason that that is given to us and i'll I'll bring that out here in just a little bit the waters continue to abate until the 10th month this is verse 5 and in the 10th month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains were seen at the end of the 40 days noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. Behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited still another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh. Birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives, I'm sorry, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil, even from his youth. 
Well, there's a good point. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Let's go back and start over here. And I want to point a few things out to you. I want you to go back to verse 1 where it says this, But God remembered Noah. That does not mean that God forgot him. God remembered Noah does not mean, oh, God forgot about Noah. Oh, I've got this other thing to do. I've got this flood. Oh, 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 yeah, that Noah guy, he's out there too. No, that, that is a Hebraism that basically means God begins to work again on his behalf. Basically, up to this point, what's the focus? Noah, get in the boat, sit down, stay out of the rain, survive. I mean, you know, it's not real tough. Notice God said this, God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. What does that mean? Well, God is using natural things to do a supernatural work. Has he ever done that before? Yes. Will he ever do that again? I'm, sh- I'm quite sure, yes. What is he doing? What's a wind do to water? Anybody know? Same of you science people. Speeds up evaporation. There are three things that speed up evaporation, how dry the air is how hot it is, and what whether there's wind or not. The more wind there is, the faster evaporation happens. And so what's, what is God's word telling us? Hey, Noah's in the boat. There's a lot of water. Now the point of the flood basically has been done. Everything's dead. Now it's time to get rid of some of this water and let Noah and his family and everything else that's on the ark start over again. How is he going to do that? Well, he starts doing that by bringing a wind Speeding up the evaporation process, getting some of the water back off of the face of the earth, right? A lot of people think that the water, if, if I asked you, I said, how long did the flood last? Many of you would say, well, 40 days and 40 nights. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But the water continued to rise because, remember, the fountains of the great deep broke, broke forth. There's a lot of water in the mantle, and even in places in the earth's crust. That came forward as well. The, the water still continued to rise for 150 days. You've never seen a flood like that. I haven't either, and I'm glad. Until the, the tops of all the highest mountains were covered. If, if even the only mountain that, that Moses knew about, or that uh, uh, Noah knew about, was Mount Ararat, today it stands 17,000 feet high. What would a flood look like it had at least 17,025 feet of water. You don't know, neither do I, and we never will. And that's a, that's a very good thing. I'm thankful for that. It was massive. Verse 4 says this, The ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Let me ask you a question. Because sometimes this happens to me. I'm taking a doctoral level class on Genesis this summer. And there's little details in that book that you go through and you go, why is that even there? Like, that doesn't even make sense. It has no relevance. It has no bearing on, on the issue. And then you know what you find out? <laughs> it has relevance. It has bearing on the issue. Why does this have relevance or bearing on the issue? Why do we even care? Why is it significant that on the 17th day of the month, the seventh month, the ark rested safely on the mountains of Ararat? Who cares? Let me tell you why you should care. The Old Testament is types and shadows, isn't it? In these Old Testament stories, whether we're talking about Noah or whether we're talking about David, we can see types and shadows of Christ who is to come, right? 
The seventh month of the Jewish civil calendar, which is the calendar being used here in Genesis, was later made the first day of, or the first month of the Jewish religious year. Okay? The Passover was then set for the 14th day of that month. Christ, our Passover, remember, 1 Corinthians 5 7 says Christ is our Passover, was slain on that day, the 14th. Guess what day Christ arose? The 17th day of the seventh month of the Jewish civil calendar. Why is it a big deal that we even have this little piece in here? Why did Moses make sure to have that? I don't even know if Moses knew. He just knew, yes, this is what God says, so I'm writing it down. Because Christ is a type of that. Being in Christ and coming to rest safely on the other side is certainly a type of what Christ will do for us. It's certainly a typology of Christ. Christ was slain on the 14th day of the seventh month and he arose on the 17th day of the seventh month. The object of your faith, your faith came safely to rest on that day. It isn't by accident that God brought a small group of people who trusted in him safely to rest after saving them from the wrath that killed the rest of humanity on this particular day because thousands of years later he would do exactly the same thing on the 17th day of the seventh month when he rose. It's a picture, a shadow, and a typology of the finished work of Christ. That's why it's important. Let's skip up here to verse 7. Verse 7 says this, He couldn't see if the water was out here. By the way, I I want you to remember this. When we're reading through Genesis, this is not... Genesis is a book of history. If I asked you what is the Bible, most people will say, well, it's a book of theology. Or they'll say, well, it's a book of religion. Well, it's a book of uh, morality. It's a book that shows us how we should live our lives. And there are certainly parts of that in the Scriptures. But there are also parts of the Bible that are history. We don't have the entirety of all the history that happened, but we do have the section that God thinks it's very, very important for us, people of faith, to know. And so a lot of times it's called the section of holy history. Why? This tells you where your faith is from. It tells you the beginning of your faith. It tells you how uh, how Abraham and his covenant with God came to be. This is a, a book of history. So it's very important that we know our history as Christians because then we're able to... Um, contextualize our faith okay verse 7 says this he sent out a raven he couldn't see what was going on he had a covering on the ark right had to make it within a cubit so basically there's a big roof on the ark if you will to make sure the rain doesn't get inside the boat well because of that because the the covering on the ark comes down so far to make sure the rain doesn't get in when you're standing on the top deck you can't see out Till you take the covering back. So how does how is he going to know what's going on out there? He devises a plan. He's not stupid. Noah has lived 600 years. He is not stupid. He's gained a lot of wisdom in that time. He realizes, well, what I'll do is I'll put a bird out there. So he sends out a raven. Why a raven? Anybody know what ravens eat? Is there anything they won't eat? Ravens are basically omnivorous scavengers. All right, They're omnivore. They'll eat anything. And by the way, they delight in carrion. If you've got a raven and you'd really like to make him happy, give him some dead flesh. He sends out the raven. Ravens are not real picky. They don't have qualms about landing on, you know, unclean surfaces, if you will. He sends out the raven. The raven doesn't come back. 
What does it tell him? There's plenty of food out there for that guy. There's dead stuff. I know we don't think about this, but I'm going to tell you something. You kill every living thing on earth except what's in a boat, there's going to be a smell. It's, there's going to be a stench. There's going to be an odor. There's a lot of dead out there. And that means dead meat too. Dead people, dead animals. The raven doesn't come back. He's got plenty to eat. He has no qualms. But he sends out the dove. Why a dove? Well, because a dove's a lot finicky. You know, it's a lot more finicky than the raven. It won't just eat meat. It likes to get onto the ground. It likes to eat on the ground. Uh, it likes to perch in upright trees. It, it doesn't just, you know, take a nap on the ground like some other birds do. Um, so he knows if the dove has plenty to eat, then the water's dried up enough that there's dry ground out there, right? He sends the dove out, and the dove comes immediately back. Doesn't find any place to rest her, the sole of her foot. She's not going to perch on a dead carcass. So he comes back, he waits another week, sends her out again. What happens? She brings back a freshly plucked olive leaf. What's that tell him? Well, it tells him that there's some olive trees out there, right? Either that are rerooted, which, uh, by the way, sometimes you can do that in a flood. You can take a tree, you can uproot it, and it can be rerooted. That happens from time to time. It's not real common, but it does happen. Uh, or the saplings have grown or seedlings have grown. But at this point in time, there are trees starting to come back, right? They're starting to bud leaves out on those mountains. Remember, he's on the mountains of Ararat. Hey, there's some olive trees that are growing out here. That's good. That's a good sign, right? He sends her out again, and what happens? She doesn't come back. What's that tell him? You see the ground. What do doves eat? They eat seeds. They eat berries. They eat greens. In other words, the diet of that dove tells him that plant life is is now returning, right? you got to remember, guys, this is a desolate wilderness, basically, that he's coming back into. A muddy mess. Everything's dead. Lots of stuff is buried. Not everything is going to be buried, but lots of stuff is buried. I can guarantee you there is plenty of bugs that were still there. But the dove acted as a signal to Noah to whether the ground was dry and how plant life was faring outside the ark. Anybody want to hazard a guess how many total days, if you add all of these days up, which I did, um, how many total days was he on the ark? It's incredible. 371. From the day that he got in and God closed the door until the day that he disembarked with his family, he was on that ark for 371 days. You ever gone stir crazy after being in your house for a few days? I don't know if you all do. My wife tells me, she's like, it doesn't bother her. She can be in the house, literally never go outside for a week. Doesn't bother her a bit. I, I can, in fact, uh, this last year, there was a, a point in time where we were coming to church and she says, you know, I guess I ought to go get dressed and not wear pajamas to church. And I was like, that's a good idea. She goes, well, this would be like the fourth day that I just wore pajamas. And I was like, are you serious? She goes, yeah, I haven't gone outside the house. I said, how can you do that? I mean, I go stir crazy. I do. Uh, we uh, When we lived in Nowata, we had a time when there was a really bad storm. School was out for a week. Everybody's iced in, basically. And I couldn't take it, man. I told my wife, I said, I'm, I'm going out. She's like, where are you going? I said, I really don't know. I just have to get out. I just have to go out and walk around and go find something to do, I guess. I'm getting stir crazy. I can't just sit around here, you know. 
And uh, she kind of laughed at me. She's like, well, good luck, you know, because you can't drive anywhere. What are you going to do? So I basically went outside and shoveled some sidewalks and came back inside and was like, well, now that's done. Now what? I hate video games. All right, I know I'm breaking some of y'all gamers' hearts. I hate video games. I think they're the most worthless, frivolous, time-wasting invention in the you know, history of man. But my mom had given us, for our wedding gift, she had given us a Wii she was like, oh, you guys will have fun sometime, you know, you can play games on this, blah, blah, blah. It's still, I, I hadn't taken it out of the box. We've been married for four years. It still wasn't even out of the wrapping. We actually busted out the Wii. That's how stir-crazy I was getting. Now, this is like two or three days. 371 days? 371 days. With your family. Remember, you can't escape from your family either. Look, I know y'all love your family, but let's get honest here. 371 days with your brothers and sisters? You can't get away? It's incredible there wasn't a murder on that ark. There was Cain and Abel going to come back. Why? These guys are together 300, more than a year. Same place. Can't get away. With your in-laws, by the way, ladies. Just throwing that out there, you know. 371 days. I say that to point something out. We need to remember that um, the ark was not centered around Noah's comfort. The ark is a typology of our life in Christ, too. It was not centered around Noah's comfort. It was not centered around his family's comfort. It was not centered around their own material wealth or their financial prosperity or their corporate significance or their fame or their recognition. No, it was centered around the purpose and glory of God. Being in the ark guaranteed their salvation, their safety, but it did not guarantee their comfort. And I've got news for you. There's a gospel that is being preached, a gospel being preached in America that says basically that, that says your life in Christ is centered around your comfort, your own prosperity, your own significance, your own fame. Come to Christ. He'll give you wealth. Come to Christ, he'll give you significance and fame and influence and material prosperity. You'll have everything you've ever dreamed just come to Jesus. That is not the gospel that's revealed in the scriptures. The gospel revealed in the scriptures is you come to Christ and you will get Christ. You come to Christ, you will get eternal life. There is no guarantee of material wealth. If you think that there is, please have a, have a go at a little church history. Please tell me how materially wealthy the apostles were. Tell me if coming to Christ worked out really well for their material prosperity. Tell me if it worked out well for their comfort. Listen, I have news for you. It is true that God can give you seasons of absolutely bountiful material wealth. It is true that God may decide to make you well-known. And it is just as true He may decide you need to, to dwell in obscurity and learn humility. It's just as true that He may want you to do your work behind the scenes. Why? Because it doesn't glorify you. It glorifies Him. I have bad news. The bad news is this. You are a selfish creature. 
whether you realize it or not, and by the way, whether you're saved or not, you have a nature that's selfish. You want everyone to love you. You want everyone to know who you are. You want to be uh, well-liked. You want to be accepted. You want to be thought well of. You want to be dignified. You want your own will. You want your own glory. And you want your own fame. That's your heart. That's my heart. That's the heart of every human being. And that's the heart of every person that perished in that flood. I don't think Noah sat around on the ark complaining about how much it stunk. And I guarantee you, it stunk. It was the only boat floating. He was probably pretty grateful to be on a boat that was floating. I'm sure he was pretty grateful. What's the first thing that he does when he gets off the ark? Complain about the journey? Boy, wasn't that horrible? We just spent more than a year together, cooped up with a whole bunch of animals. Our only job the entire time we're there was to feed and water animals and clean muck out of the stalls. How'd you like that for a, for a year? Nobody's sitting around giving a good job, great job. You've done so well. You're going to get a promotion. No. Yeah, he wasn't whining. We do. You know when we whine the most when we think we're persecuted and suffering? And by the way, if you did, were not here this morning for equipping hour, you missed it. Man, Dylan gave a message on suffering that was phenomenal. But I've got bad news, and that is most of us think we're really suffering and we're really persecuted when we don't have the fame or the glory or the wealth that we think we deserve. That's when we really get upset. I deserve better than this, God. <laughs> Do you? Is that what you deserve? You want to ask God to give you what you deserve? You deserve justice. Your sin deserves punishment. An everlasting kind. You can get what you deserve. But it won't be what you think. If your own selfish ambitions are what you're living for, I would submit to you, you probably don't know Christ then. You may know about Him. You may have heard all the Bible stories, been raised in a Christian home. I don't care. If you're living for you, then you haven't been born again to Christ. Your own selfish ambitions died at the foot of the cross the moment you became born again. That's what your baptism was. It was a symbol of that. Dying to your old life. What's that mean? Dying to your old, selfish, self-seeking ambitions and being raised to newness of life. What's that mean? Being raised to live a life chasing Christ. For His glory, not your own. The point of your life is not to live for your own pleasure, comfort, or glory. And those who were in Noah's days, who were living for their own pleasure, comfort, and glory, found themselves perishing in a watery grave. Verse 20, Noah gets off the boat. The first thing he says is not how terrible it was, not how hard it was, laborious it was. 600-year-old man was being a farmer inside of an ark. It's not going to be easy work. And he wasn't whining about it. We'll whine about 30-year-olds, whine about having to work hard. Noah's 600. That ought to teach us something, huh? Noah built an altar to the Lord, verse 20 says, and took of every clean animal 
and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What a hero of faith. The first thing the guy does when he gets off the ark is not to complain that this is, this is an entirely new world he's on. It's not to complain about the bumpy ride that he just took or that all of his friends and all of his family, save for, you know, seven other people, are dead. He doesn't complain about all of that. What's he do? He gives thanks. He gives thanks. I'm going to tell you something. He gave a sacrifice. When you have seven animals left in all the earth and you give one of them to God, that's a real sacrifice. When there's seven cattle left on all the earth and you go, I'm going to kill one of them for the Lord. And that's a sacrifice. We think it's a sacrifice to give money and we've got lots of it. Even the poorest among us has lots of money compared to the vast rest of the world. That's a sacrifice. No one knew what it was to sacrifice. He made a real sacrifice. When you've got a handful of animals and you give one, what do you think those things were thinking too? What would you think if you're the seventh bull on the ark, or the seventh cow on the ark there, right? The fourth bull. Wait, time out. Male, female, male, female, male, female, me. What's my purpose going to be? Oh, it's coming. You're going to glorify God. Hey, you just probably don't want to know how. <laughs> I got news for you. We'll be the same way. You'll glorify God through your life or you'll glorify him through your death. That's a hard saying to hear, but that's true. You will glorify God through your life or you'll glorify him through your death. You are either his friend Beloved through Christ, or you are his enemy. You are not a neutral observer from the sidelines. You have the king of all creation who's coming to you, the conquering king of all creation, who's coming to you with terms of peace and saying, I'll accept your surrender or I'll destroy you. I will give you mercy freely or you will get justice. You're a lawbreaker. You're a wicked transgressor. And your deeds deserve death. But I'm willing to give you mercy. And you know what we do? We hear the gospel day after day after day and scoff at it. And there are people who die on the other side of the globe who have never even heard the gospel. And you've had the privilege of growing up hearing it again and again and again and you scoff at it? What are you deserving of if you do that? I was that guy. I was that guy. Kenny Guzman asked me some good questions this last week, and so it got me to thinking about some things. So I want to go and give a little piece on this. He asked me some questions about the flood. Is the flood local? Is it global? Today, there's different language that's used because everybody wants to hide what they really mean. So instead of saying, well, it was global, they'll say, well, it was universal. You know, the whole universe that he knew was drowned. Yeah, yes, the flood was global. The problem is today in Christianity, and I know I'm kind of getting off a sidetrack here, but I want to end by saying this. The, the problem is in Christianity today, there's a significant portion of Christians who I, whose idea of apologetics is to compromise the biblical record enough that an unregenerate world will find the entire meta narrative more palatable. 
Well, they, they don't really like this story. They don't like Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't like Noah and the flood. They don't like creation. So what we'll just say is, well, that, that all, that's, that's mythological. That's not really historical. Hey, if we compromise it enough now, will you believe it? That's not apologetics though. They want so desperately to be loved, accepted, and dignified by the world of non-Christian academia. And by the way, I've been there too. That they're willing to compromise vast, vast swaths of the Judeo-Christian history found in this book. That seems strange to me. I suppose they've forgotten that whoever desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's what James 4, 4 says. You want to be a friend of the world? Fine. You're making yourself an enemy of God. The world is not neutral. Unregenerate academics are not neutral. Unbelievers are not neutral. They're at war against God. They have an unregenerate, darkened heart that is at war against God. It's not neutral. It's not standing on the sidelines saying, well, I'm an unbiased judge. Show me your evidence. Show me your evidence. I'll judge fairly. C.S. Lewis called that problem God in the dock. He said, unregenerate man wants to put God on the stand and say, give me all the evidence and I'll decide whether it's good enough for me to believe or not. And Lewis went on to say this. He said, God's never acted that way. He doesn't submit himself to the judgments of man. He tells man, I'm God, you are man, you know it. Which is what Romans 1 tells us. The darkened heart is not neutral. The unregenerate are at war against God. Noah's flood is one of these points of contention. The unbelieving world does not want to be reminded that the God of the Bible will certainly judge sin. And he has a proven track record for doing so. They don't want to be reminded about Noah's flood. They don't want to be reminded about Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't want to be reminded about any of the biblical history that indicates God is the righteous, holy judge. They want Jesus to be the friendly, loving guy that has no judgment whatsoever. That's what they want Jesus to be. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. In fact, Jesus said all judgment had been committed to him. Um, the book of Second Peter tells us about this phenomenon when it says, quote, This they willfully forget. The unregenerate willfully forgets this. That the word of God... That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Okay, so Peter is telling us unregenerate people willfully forget about Noah's flood. Why? Because it speaks of judgment. And it's the same thing of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah has been mocked and scoffed and laughed at by unregenerate academia. Except, in the last ten years, it's been dug up. It just had, in fact... Part of this uh, doctoral level course on Genesis, I had to watch a video of uh, the guy who's basically leading the expedition. They dug up Sodom and found a layer of sulfurous rock. Back in the day, they called that brimstone. That's very interesting. Wicked people, and by the way, if you are not regenerate, you are wicked. You don't have any unbelieving friends that are really good people. Okay, you may like them. They may be affable. I have unregenerate people that I like as well. And I work with and are in my family that, I'm lo- that I love, but they're still wicked. 
Wicked men willfully forget and suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about Noah's flood. They suppress the truth about God's existence, Romans 1 tells us. They suppress the truth. They will not confess God's truth, even though in their heart they know it is true. They're not going to confess it. They're going to suppress it. They're going to push it down. It's the same thing with Noah's flood. And so now today we have this new theory. Well, instead of being global, maybe the flood is just local to the Mesopotamian Valley. Okay. I think that's really poor history. I think it's even more poor science, but most people don't know much about science. In fact, the guys that talk the most in Christianity about science have no science training. It's incredible to me. Well, you just don't understand science. Dude, you've had three hours of science training. Don't tell me you don't understand science. Here's what they'll say. Okay, well, actually, Noah's flood was just a local flood. It was in the Mesopotamian Valley. It flooded the basin. That was all that, you know, um, Noah really knew about. And so, therefore, it certainly wasn't global in its in its reach. And the reason they say that is because they want to hold on to the Darwinian account of the geologic column, which is a bad starting place to begin with. So let me give you 10 reasons why I think Noah's flood cannot be a local event. I had to type them all out. I thought, hey, this would be a good idea. This would be a good chance for me to type some down. Number one, authorial intent. We went through the school of ministry. We taught a course on hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? Tell me. Go ahead. Somebody knows it. Proper biblical interpretation. We said basically there are two kinds of interpretations. Actually, there's a third called divine mysticism, which is really weird and Someday I'll explain that. But basically, there are two. There are what? Authorial intent, reader response. In other words, who controls the meaning of the text? Well, in conservative evangelicalism, it's always been authorial intent. That is to say, we want to find out what the author intended to convey. The author controls the meaning of the text. We don't just read it and go, well, this is what it means to me. If you've ever been to a church where the Bible study was, hey, read this passage. Now, what does that mean to you? You have engaged in the fundamental hermeneutic of liberalism. It, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it really means and how that affects you. Not what meaning you want to derive out of it, what meaning the author gave to it. So the question becomes this. What did Moses mean to convey when he wrote these chapters? Did he mean to convey that, well, there was a, there was a flood and it was big, it was catastrophic, but it was only in one certain place. It was still localized. It was just big. And the Nile River really, you know, flooded. Is that what he meant to convey? No, I don't think so. Why? What, what about the wording? All the high mountains. The water covered all the high mountains under all the heavens. That's... Two superlatives in one sentence in Hebrew. That's very rare. Why is it that way? Because he's trying to tell us something. Expressions conveying the global nature of the flood are used more than 30 times in just chapters 6 through 9. Number three, Noah's flood is referred to in the Hebrew as the Mabawol. It is the only flood that is ever referred to with that word. No other flood is ever referred to with that term. The other Hebrew words for normal or local floods, such as Nahar, Nazal, Zerim, Zeram, etc., none of them are ever used in reference to Noah's flood. Noah's flood has its own specific term because it's so massive. By the way, the New Testament's the same way. The New Testament has its own unique term for Noah's flood as well. Cataclysmos. What, uh, 
What English word do you think we might get from that? Cataclysmus. Cataclysm. Catastrophic. This was the cataclysm that buried the old world. Instead of the usual Greek word for the flood. The text, number five, the text tells us that all the high mountains were covered to a depth of 15 cubits. That's roughly 25 feet. Water seeks its own level, so if all the mountains were covered, the flood couldn't have been confined. How do you confine it? How do you confine a flood and cover the high mountains? It doesn't make sense. I mean, that's just geography lesson, really. Six, the text tells us all flesh died that moved upon the earth. It doesn't sound like Moses is trying to convey all flesh in this one area died. Seven, there's never been a record of a local flood whose waters continued to rise for 150 days. Most local floods, the water rises for a few hours. And that's bad floods, by the way, tsunamis and such. Eight, if the flood was unique to the valley, there should be a host of sedimentary strata that are unique to that area. And there aren't. Nine, later biblical writers and figures accepted the flood as being a global event. Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Peter, Hebrews, Jesus, etc. Ten, Jesus affirmed the flood as global in scope, even making it the climactic sign and type of the coming worldwide judgment when he returns. Will Jesus' judgment be local? I mean, he's going to judge the whole world, which is what he said in Matthew 24, 37 through 39, and Luke 17, 26 to 27, right? The coming great day of the Lord. Just as in the days of Noah, so will it be. Okay. Being a global event also has some very important theological outworkings. I think the most important uh, was the rainbow as a sign. Right? He puts his bow in the clouds. Why? Because he says, when the bow's in the clouds, I'll see that, I'll remember, I'll never f- kill all flesh with water again. If the rainbow is the sign, he's actually, he says he's making a covenant. This is chapter 9. He makes a covenant with uh, with Noah, with Noah's family, and with all living animals, all living flesh. He actually says it's part of this covenant. Um, and what is his covenant? His covenant is, I'll never kill everything like this again. If the rainbow is the sign of the covenant, and the flood's local, then he's done that again. Does that make sense where I'm going with that? So the question becomes, what is it that he promised never to do again then? Um, it also doesn't make sense to tell a guy, hey, you need to spend 120 years building a boat. I'm going to bring a bunch of animals to By the way, Noah did not go out and get the animals. The scripture says God brought the animals to him. Why would he need to bring the animals to him? Just send them out of the valley. I mean, the Mesopotamian Valley is a big valley. Don't get me wrong. It's a large area. Okay? It really is. If you lived in the very center of that valley, you aren't hiking out of it in a day. Okay? But you could certainly hike out of it in 120 years. You know, a few months. So yes, I think it's very important. Here, here's why I think that's important. I think it's important that we see Genesis as history. Why? Because that's what it's meant to be. It's written in a historical narrative stem. It's not written like the Psalms. It's not written like Ecclesiastes. And if we have a book that's historical narrative, I think we're bound to take it as historical narrative. If Jesus refers to it as historical accounts, I think we're to take it as historical accounts. If Jesus says it was written by Moses... And the academics of the day say, no, there was a whole bunch of different authors, right? There was J, E, P, and D. They all wrote this. They had portions and pieces. We're not really sure who it was, but I'm going to go with Jesus. 
I'm going to go that with his interpretation. I think he was the the best of it. So, all right. Enough of that. We've got some communion today. I want to point something something out before we go to communion. Um, I want you to think on this. I want you to think about that. That Christ was a type of what it was to be in the ark. Christ was a type of that. They came to rest safely on the mountains of Ararat on the same day that Christ would rise again. That's what you're remembering. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Right? The blood, the cup, the bread, his body. Why are we doing it? We're remembering what he did for us. His sacrifice on our behalf. Just as the ark was a precursor, a shadow of what was to come. Today, we don't look forward. We look back, right? Look back to the incredible sacrifice that one perfect life made for us. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Remind us, God, that your word is true. We don't get to decide what part is true and what part is not. We get to submit. Forgive me, Lord, for wanting to be lifted up in pride, for wanting to critique your word as if I know better. Changes. Father, let us remember that um, the ark that we will find is Christ. Let us remember that when we come to Christ, you are the object of our faith. The object of our faith is not material wealth or possessions or significance, but the object of our faith is Christ. We put our faith in Christ. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.